Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM and it's very nice to be actually in the studio here, Studio One uh, and I'm with a speech and language therapist today. Uh, this this programme, Love the Words, is, is about words, it's about speech, it's also about listening and we've got someone with us who really knows her stuff. So we've got Jacqueline Gale. Hello, Jack. Hello, Peter. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you here. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, yeah, you're, you're, a, you're a research speech and language therapist. So tell us exactly what, yeah, what you do. Well, the research part of it is very much asking questions, thinking the bigger question is how do we make life better for young people who have communication disorders? And the work that I've done is particularly thinking about young people who have autism and language disorder. And is that something you've, you've, you have you trained as a speech and language therapist? Was that something you expected to do, particularly to work with children? You obviously have done that throughout your career. Yeah, so I trained here in Leeds and graduated 30 years ago last year, which was quite a surprise. I didn't know then that I would end up in research. I was, I'm, I still very am very much a clinician. So the research that I do is around intervention. So it's how do we be better as clinicians? How, how do we improve our practice? So um, it probably took a while. I would say it probably took maybe 10 or 15 years before I really had the confidence or the opportunities to, to move into research. So I used a lot of audit and service evaluation when I worked clinically and I was able to gather that information and data with some support um, from the universities to to guide me in terms of what to do. So I, I, I kept those links going very much and then eventually I did reach a point where I had something that was worth presenting to the profession, if you like. So I applied to... The Royal, Co the Royal College of Speech Therapists Conference. And I said, oh, we've been doing some interesting work here clinically. And they said, oh, it looks like you have. Why don't you come along and tell us about it? So that was my first steps into presenting information or thinking that I could be in research, really. So that was 2000, probably. Well, language gives us power, I would say. <clears throat> A lot of what I have done through creative writing and we do here through radio is about particularly giving young people the power to use their voice and to find their voice but if you don't have language if you can't speak or you have trouble speaking that is quite a thing in this world that we live in so I'm just wondering I mean you obviously have you, children are your your focus oh. your center why do some children just not develop language so Sometimes that might be to do with other developmental conditions. So sometimes a young person might have Down syndrome or they might have autism or even a condition like cerebral palsy. Those would impact on a young person's ability to learn language, to speak and, and to then put words together into sentences in order to express themselves. But there is a condition that's much less well known really called developmental language disorder. So although it's very common, it's often quite hidden. And the reason it's hidden is, I think, because these children are struggling to learn language, but they don't have anything else 
developmentally that's gone that, that is making life difficult for them. So there's no real reason for anyone to expect that their language is, is not developing as it should be. So a language disorder is, I suppose, simply, it's any difficulty that a young person has in learning language or using language in the absence of any other reason that might cause that. So it's quite a specific condition. And is it something that is that is if you like mechanical in the brain or is it because because of something socially that's a good question and i think the the environment that the child lives in definitely has an impact but it seems to be that it's much more happens in families mm-hmm. but it can also just appear randomly so there does seem to be something like it's a neurodevelopmental condition so it means there's some slight differences in the the child's brain that leads to this kind of difficulty with language um, but it can happen as a one-off they've never had that in a family before or you can sometimes find that maybe cousins or aunties or uncles or something have had some language difficulty that again you know maybe has been quite hidden or they've they've manipulated their lives away from needing to use language a lot so that it, it still re- remains hidden even as an adult and when is it first detected generally do you think well, hopefully, what we would hope is that before the child was usually in reception, um, mm. we'd be thinking about when the children are then coming in, so they're with a peer group, and you begin to see that maybe they stand out, maybe they're not using words. And I think it, it's different from having unclear speech. So sometimes children's speech can be unclear, and that's completely expected because they're learning, and it will change. But if a child continues to have, say, very unclear speech or if it's difficult for them to think of the word, that's a, that's a really interesting condition. It's called a word-finding difficulty. And we would recognise it as like a tip-of-the-tongue feeling. We, everyone gets it occasionally. And we usually get it for words that are unfamiliar or we don't use them very often. But a young person with a language disorder might be experiencing word-finding difficulties for words they know really well. And it might be that at the beginning of the morning, they know the word and they can answer the question from the teacher. But five minutes later, they're thinking, what is that word? You know, and, and they literally can't bring it to mind. And that's a kind of weak semantic the semantic network. So the idea of meaning and how meaning connects to words. So that is sometimes not detected until the children are a little bit older. But we would hope that there are some screening and some local authorities and some schools and some services would offer um, a screening to those nursery and reception classes to make sure that they're not missing any children. But around about five, we should be expecting that five years of age, that by then we should be able to detect children who are going to go on to have difficulties and will need support. So, yes, I'm just... It it must be so frustrating Mm -hmm. and you can see... You can see people of, of all ages, actually, it also happens, doesn't it, when people are early stages of dementia, that, mm. that awful thing of, wow, what am I trying to say? It's mm. that thing that, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's a struggle. It's painful to win. It's also painful to, to have that as well, as you say, that tip of the tongue. Yeah, God, mm. what's that word I need? And, and But, yeah, how, how is it something, I'm just wondering, I, I, I was in a reception class a year or two ago, and a, and a teacher there told me that they were having more and more children, actually, now, who seemed to not be at the stage where they should be in terms of speaking by the time they got to reception. And that was proving really difficult for them at a one-to-one level. Is is, is that something you recognise, or was that just a piece of anecdotal evidence that might not be substantiated? No, I think I think there probably are some some studies around that would that would also corroborate that and say that yeah that that the and I think maybe that is to do with the differences in how children are playing so some of the speculation is around screen time so it's much more passive um and shared play and and opportunities for shared play and I think the pandemic has really limited young people's exposure to other young people so when they're learning to interact and speak with others and also the role model so who are they hearing who's speaking and what language do they need to use so what are the demands in their play and in their environment for them to use language Mm. so if they can reach everything for themselves and they don't have to ask for things and 
and you and at some level you want to set the environment up so that it's not an obstacle course for the child but there are times when it's helpful when you can put things out of reach so that they need to ask and they therefore they need to use their language skills as well but I think your experience is probably something that a lot of people are concerned about and there's certainly some interventions around a general upskilling of all children so all children should be maybe more verbal stories are the thing really so we need to expose children to listening to stories interacting with stories wanting to retell stories and and that idea of that's where language comes from and if you think about young people people listening to this will know if you had a young child they might want you to read the same story every day for weeks and weeks and weeks and they just want that repetition and familiarity and they can predict the story and they know which bit of the story is on which page and when you're going to turn over. And that richness and repetition is very key to learning vocabulary mm. and also learning other people's thoughts and intentions, what might happen, making predictions, as well as um, just the idea of how, how you put sentences and words together mm. to explain something. It's so crucial, isn't it? Because if you feel limited by your ability mm. to tell a story you won't tell a story mm. so what's who who in our society tells mm. the stories mm. people who have the confidence to put that that narrative together yeah. in 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 language yeah. i suppose so the yeah the, and and i th my experience of of children is they often want you to, they want to tell you a story mm. they want to tell you the story that they've heard somewhere or they want to tell you the story of what happened at school or something like that if you don't feel you have that ability that's a, that you that that could shut you up. I think it really does, yeah. and I think there's you know there's when when a young person can't think of the word, can't construct a sentence, or their speech isn't clear, they really are open to being really misunderstood, and I mean that literally in that they say something and we don't understand what they've said and we can't fill in the gaps of their little story, so we're, mm -hmm. we we literally misunderstand. But I think as well, the impact of a language disorder on a young person is that they, they can either do kind of one of two things, really. Either withdraw mm. and become quite quiet and reserved and very watchful. And then we interpret that behaviour and we might think, oh, she's quite shy. And the other option is that they seem to have is, is they externalise the frustration. And so then there might be grabbing toys from another child or pushing someone over or some of that behaviour then some of that behaviour then becomes interpreted is that that young person has a behaviour problem or an emotional and social problem. And, and I think whenever we see those two things, we need to ask the question, what is their language like? How much do they understand? How much can they express themselves because I think that it has a long tail I think that in adolescence we see teenagers mm. expressing themselves expressing preferences physically by moving away or being aggressive and they don't have the language skills to negotiate yeah. to not be tricked into things yeah. to not be persuaded into doing things that they may be if they had negotiations because we think about how complex it is to negotiate mm -hmm. you've got to state what you want you've got to know what the other person wants and you've got to be able to argue why you want what you want and I think when young people don't do that you see these other behaviours coming in and I think we have a there's a really strong evidence actually that a lot of people I think there was a study under 30s in prison their language skills were assessed and of a significant proportion of them had an undetected language disorder and I think on the shyness side I met a young woman when she was about 16 and she had um, what used to be called Asperger's syndrome and what people might be familiar with what that means but we would now refer to it differently so she had autism um, but um, and she said that I said what's important to you what could we work on which is one of my opening questions with teenagers and she said so I'm really fed up. People think I'm shy. And I said, OK, so you're not shy. And I said, what are all the other ways you could think of that you could show that you're not shy? But she needed time to think. Mm. She needed time to, to listen and understand what other people had said. And she needed then time to process that to get her answer right. Yeah. And all of that looked like shyness. And so we talked about a few different ways that 
people who she thought weren't shy and what they looked like. And the next time I saw her, she had a bright red streak in the centre of her hair and she'd had her nose pierced. And she said she felt fantastic. She said, no one thinks I'm shy anymore because <laughs> she didn't look shy. Yeah. And I guess if people think you're shy, mm. that as a shy teenager, uh, you know, people thought you were shy, then you became mm. more shy. Yeah. You, you conformed to what they <laughs> expected yeah. you to be, yeah. which I think is uh, can be can be very mm. imprisoning. I, th I think the the uh, yeah, I mean, my experience of working in prisons mm. uh, when I was had a when I was a writer in residence in a, in, in several prisons, particularly with young men, that they uh, many of them were in prison for a violent offence mm. that was when they talked about it probably could have been resolved through mm. talking through speaking through mm. negotiation but wasn't because they didn't have that language they lashed out they hit you know and it that seemed sad i think i think to me and i, I you know and i always felt it was my you know as a writer do working in that situation encouraging an expansion of vocabulary to express the nuances of the feeling that we have because I think mm. if you can only if you only have angry mm. sad <clears throat> happy mm. then what are the you, you all there's all that other experience that you can't mm. you don't have a name for you don't have a word for mm. um do, do you, is is when when children come through uh, you know and are detected maybe in in nursery and so on with 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 developmental difficulties is there a gender thing going on is it mostly yeah, right there is actually and I, I think it's interesting that you picked up on that as well so boys are really much more likely to have a language disorder than girls mm. and I think as well if you also think about how girls and boys play so what happens in my field which is this combination of language disorder and autism sometimes called social communication disorder I don't know if that's helpful or not helpful to people but what you can find is that girls, it's much harder to detect the girls who have difficulties. So they would go on into teenage years before their difficulties are found, whereas boys, it's much more likely to be 9, 10 if, if, if their difficulties are subtle. And I think one of the things that I think is interesting about that is about how the play is very different. So girls sometimes play in scripts, so they might set up a, a home corner play script and they will tell you what to do and what to say. So you're being your daddy yeah. and your mummy and you're the baby and you have to go into bed and you have to cry and you have to say, mummy, give me some milk. So all of that play is very much setting up a social understanding mm. and, it's, and, and, and even feeds in that emotion language. Mm. So if you think about how boys are playing in those early years settings, it is quite different. And I think boys would be much more, say, directed towards construction or mechanically kind of, you know, that kind of idea of building and and play, but then their play might be more physical mm. at that age. So it's also kind of really important, I think, to kind of look at how we are, what opportunities for play we're providing mm. in terms of gender so that the boys can be, you know, on the receiving end of that kind of social play, if that's, you know, if that's what you want to call it, the idea of pretend play where you're constructing little scenarios and, and, and learning how people speak to each other and what they say and what they don't say. So why is it that girls are detected, the, the, you know, the problems are detected later in girls? I think if you think about friendships, the, w the way they develop, and I think for boys as well, you can still fit in in the playground if you play football or you're hanging around and, and there's a bit of, chasing so that play can still continue quite a long time mm. but girls it around about 9 10 11 they begin to become much more verbal mm. so the play or the break times are much more about chatting mm. did you watch this program have you got this did you see this so it's much more verbal and it's much more dependent on language skills and it's also very dependent on those social signals of um being generous and being kind and being thoughtful and having that empathy. And I think some girls, especially the ones I work with, they they haven't got the language skills to keep up. Mm. So the speed at which that happens, and even if even when it's if it, for boys, if it becomes very based on banter and teasing, if they can't tell the difference between playful teasing and unkind teasing, mm. which often is very it's very difficult to understand anyway isn't it mm. but I, I think if you have a language difficulty it's even more difficult then they can choose to be on their own and then at that point someone might notice that th that the child is spending maybe way too much more time on their own and the demands of peer interaction are beginning to kind of outstrip what they can 
cope with. And then they might ask for some support at that point. It's really interesting what you said about the... If you have a maybe a problem with language, then you interpret what other people say differently as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't... Mm. That's... So, yeah, that, I suppose it follows. But th- so somebody who... Does it affect that if you can't... If you have problems with speaking and putting your thoughts into to words is does a problem with listening go with that or is that not related that's a good question so often you can have children who don't have any difficulty really with understanding Mm. so their ability to understand what is said to them is intact Mm. and their learning is intact but their ability to use grammar to construct sentences Mm. and their ability to use sentences to construct little stories and talk about what's happened to them that's that would be called an expressive language disorder i think for all the children i've worked with i think that's the hardest for teachers to manage and it's the hardest for the young people to come to terms with as well that's where i see greatest frustration really so if you think about a teacher trying to prepare a lesson she's got to do two things she's got to get the learning level right for that young person but whatever the output of that lesson is has got to be really supportive for the language difficulties that that young person has so if they have word finding difficulties there's no point asking that or or sentence construction no point asking that child to write a sentence but maybe a task that would be select the right word to complete this sentence would show that they could they understood it and they know it and they can do the task. But if that was a blank page saying, write some sentences about what we've just been talking about, that child wouldn't be able to start. Mm. So for teachers, sometimes the differentiation happens and everything's dropped down. So everything is simpler. Mm. But the young people I'm particularly interested in is they don't need it to be simpler. In fact, they often get really frustrated if they get given work that's too easy and get really cross. And that can demotivate them. It also can really impact their self-esteem because if you imagine you are a, a bright boy, usually boys, I'll, most of my experience is working with young boys, so you're a bright boy and you already know this and then you're given a very simplified mm. worksheet to do, I'm just not doing it. I'm not doing it. You know, scribble on it, throw it out, get cross. Whereas if you can give something that's actually really hard and you say you're going to learn some really new words but this is how you're going to do it and you teach it in a way... You might use visual support is always really helpful. Pictures, personal experience, being able to actually learn by doing. Then you can switch children back on and and make them feel good about their learning and feel good about what they can express. But I think that's, for me, that's the area that I want to stay focused on because those are the children I think who are at risk of being switched off from education. They're very capable and they will, if they're in the wrong setting, Um, probably end up in trouble. So, yeah, we're talking to Jacqueline Gale, who is a speech and language therapist. We're talking about language and how particularly some children don't their language does not develop perhaps as it should what to do about that what happens when people can't speak what what power speech gives us when we when we can we do have the words but Jacqueline what what, how do you supposing yeah you're given a child to work with you've never met them before Mm -hmm. how does that go what 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 sort of thing do you do in a session in a first session in the first session, often we would ask the parents um, what their experience is so far and what their concerns are. And I think parents come often, they want information and they want reassurance. So the reassurance is either, yes, it looks like there is some difficulty and we can do something about it. Or the reassurance is, he's fine, we just need a bit more time. Mm. So that's really important, having that conversation with the parent. I think 
my work in particular, and I wouldn't say that everybody does this, but I try to have a quite upfront conversation with the child, pretty much regardless of how old they are. And um, so I will tell them, so my job is to think about talking and to think about speaking. And um, if anyone finds that difficult, it's my job to help them. And then I might ask something like, do you find talking difficult? And sometimes the children will instantly say yes and they'll tell me and the parents are always amazed because it's always like this hidden secret. It's a parent there. Yeah, yeah, always. Yeah, yeah, usually for young people it would be. But sometimes they say, no, talking is easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think, well, that's good. So, But for me, there's a level of awareness that you need. So whenever I begin that therapeutic journey, I want the young person to know what we're doing and why mm. so that they're they're invested in that process. But we would do either a formal assessment, what we call a formal assessment, where we have a, a battery of tests, or we would do some informal assessments, so some observation, some play, some conversation. So start a conversation and see what does the child do. The children I work with particularly have difficulty with conversations, so if I ask a question, they might be able to do a little bit of simple backwards and forwards answering. Um, but then they might begin to talk about their favourite topic. So that's like a pragmatic language disorder, this part of social communication. And that's a very safe place for them to be. Mm. So always let that conversation run, show an interest in, in what they're doing. And then I would try and move them off that topic to see if they will come with me or if they can't. And I think the reason for that is sometimes they don't have the language skills to follow a topic that they haven't prepared so if you imagine something that you're very familiar with, you kind of already know what you might mm. say. You know what the words are. You know what the sentences are. So I think sometimes that can hide the fact that there's a language difficulty mm. underneath that. So that would be the first thing I'd be looking for. And in terms of an informal assessment, you would assess their vocabulary. Mm. So, I'm, so we look at it in terms of if I show you a picture and I say, what is this? Can you tell me what it is? That would show me the word finding difficulty that I mentioned earlier. Mm. So children might, they might say horse for zebra uh, or they might describe it. It's a bit like a horse with black and white stripes. Mm. So you get some sense of what they know of the word. But also you want to be able to give them, say, four pictures to choose from and ask them to point to the one that you say. That gives you a different measure. You sometimes see that they know more words than they can Mm. that they can bring to mind in terms of naming. And then you look at sentences. So you give them a picture and say, please make me a sentence using the word um, horse. And then another one where you might read some sentences and they've got to find the picture that you've described. And then a storytelling task. So again, that's word level, mm. sentence level, and then above sentence level. So either construct a story and I give them some pictures to tell me a story. Or we have a story that, I read to them and then ask them to answer some questions on that. And by the time I've done all of that, I will have a really good sense of has there been any breakdown and where did the breakdown occur? So children might have good word level skills, but then poor sentence construction, poor, poor grammar at that level. Mm -hmm. So it's really about looking at that whole picture as if it was a jigsaw puzzle really I think of it Peter it's like the the, the whole jigsaw puzzle and and what you were saying earlier about emotion vocabulary really important to understand that so can they tell the difference between happy and sad and angry and scared but also then what about all of those words in between so everything from concerned to terrified so we would teach some of that in therapy as well so then the job is to really pull all of that together and make a diagnosis and, and then share that with the family and try and make a plan for the best way to do that. And there's always two things, really. I think you can do things within the child. So there's definitely skills that I can teach the child. But there's always something that the family can do to support language to develop or to support the child to, to learn in the best way for them and something that the school can do as well so that's within the child and then within the environments as well and do and do families do parents are they mostly compliant keen to help are there are there or are there levels of difficulty there i think that relationship with the parent is you know 
that's so important, mm. you know, to be trusted. You know, it's, it's one of the privileges of my life that, you know, people will trust me with, you know, with the, the realities of how difficult it is. And, mm. and I think when a parent says to me, I can see that what you're saying will work, but I just don't know how we're going to manage to do that. Mm. I feel like that's a win. So they might be saying, I I'm, we haven't done it and I, I don't think we will be doing it. Mm. But the fact that they've trusted me to say that is is fantastic because then I can either say we can try and then embed the ideas much more in what they're already doing. So how do you make lunch for your child on a Saturday and turn that into a language activity? Mm. Mm. How do you read it? How do you put them? How do you have a bath mm. and get them ready with their pajamas and bring language learning into that? So mm. it's really about... It's rare that that parents are really resistant, but I think that that trust that they would give you that they're, what you've asked them to do is is beyond the family life at the moment for whatever those reasons are is is the place to start and to try and build that trust and make sure that you can then give them advice that they can take on board. Are there how important are factors like poverty or, mm. or and class? Mm -hmm. Well, I think whenever families are under those kind of pressures, there's no doubt there's, you know, um, your good friend and my colleague James, Professor James Law, a lot of his work was around those extraneous factors that really impact on a child's ability to achieve. Mm. So if you think of the family, they lack resources within the home, there's constant pressure on, on food or heating or well-being, the parent has less to offer mm. in terms of time and resources and and genuinely headspace mm. to think about how to turn this to how do, how do I turn this routine into a language learning activity is not the first thing they're thinking mm. and i think those things are really incredible and i think that we really do need to get to a better position of of really that you know hit that idea of leveling up you know, whatever mm. that means, you know, obviously mm. in, in all kinds of ways, but it definitely makes an impact. And so there was a um, an intervention a, a good few years ago called Sure Start. Yeah. yeah. And there were Sure Start centres everywhere. And I think one of the critiques that that people had of that, that the people who really needed to to, to access it didn't necessarily access it mm. and that it was very much a top-down initiative rather than a what do parents of young children in this area need so i for me i think a more bespoke approach to supporting the families in a geographical area around parenting and, and the young people that they have in their families um would probably be much more complicated mm. to deliver but probably more effective as well really but i think those things really really come into play and do you think that do you think that these this work that you do is valued in terms of the kind of emphasis it's given within sort of social policy or yeah hmm so again james got himself into the position of influencing policy and so the Burko review, John Burko completed a mm. review of speech and language, um, they called it speech, language and communication needs. And so he completed a review and made recommendations. And I think maybe four or five years ago, they reviewed that and looked at have the needs changed and have the provision changed. And really very little had, had shifted. I think it is the really the hidden difficulty. We're a very small profession, speech and language therapy. And but what's interesting, I think social media has made a difference. And the there there is um there is a website which is now called Raising Awareness of Developmental Language Disorder. So it's radld.org, and they now have a national year. Uh, what is it? A, a year, a day, mm. a national day of raising awareness. Mm. And so those things, and we have a pat we have patrons, and there are so the um the royal patronage for the for the college so there are things that people are doing in terms of trying to raise awareness and and change policy but it tends to largely come through education and then it tends to not be directed at what we would call a clinical population but more of those kind of demographic mm. ideas where you have 
all children are coming through with delayed language, therefore we need an intervention for all children. And those things are helpful, but they don't necessarily target the needs of the children who will go on to have language difficulties for their entire life. Got it. So, and I think that was the work that James was doing. So there was the, the Burkle Review and then the other work. Um, so more recently looking at how to get a sense of, get away from this idea of a postcode lottery. Mm. That because of where you live and the resources you have available to you, dictates your language ability, which dictates your educational achievement, which dictates the professions that you're going to probably work in as well. Mm. So I think it's very highly valued by parents and teachers and within certain pockets of local authorities it'd be very highly valued as a as a service to provide. But at that national level I think we still have some work to do. Partly I think that's to do with levels of evidence as well, where they're they're challenging us to prove things that are maybe not provable. There are a couple of things I just want to ask you still. Mm. Um, I mean, this is a big question, but do we <laughs> do we listen to children carefully enough? Do we listen to young people? I mean, in the old days, it was you know children are seen and not heard. I remember um, my mum when I was talking. I was talking to my small toddler son, and I was well. He was talking to me, and I was kind of listening and going, "Well, yeah, yeah." But, and after this little exchange, my mum, who came from a completely mm. different generation, she said to me, "You don't have to listen to everything they say, you know." And I, and I, and that was a real eye for me. But I thought, "Oh, that's an interesting perception into how I was brought up." But I mean, yeah, do we? I mean, is is that a factor? If if children grow up in a situation where they don't feel heard, they won't speak. I guess. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And lots of people are, there's, it's really in the last mm, maybe five or six years, there's been some really nice studies within speech and language therapy who are finding new ways to interview children who have language difficulties. Mm. So if you have a language difficulty and I want to know what you think either about school or your friendships or the services that you're been offered in terms of speech and language therapy service to improve your communication how do i how do i know that i've asked the question in a way that a you understand b you feel you can answer and that you feel safe enough to tell the mm -hmm. truth so there's been a lot of studies about developing different interview techniques and and different methods to enable children one thing is very simple um so in our in our research in manchester i was um with a couple of colleagues, developed a means of interviewing children who have language disorder and autism, asking them in general about school, but that was primarily a warm-up. What we wanted to know was, is this work that we've done with you acceptable? Mm. And I have to say, it's one of the best pieces of work. Like, I love my job, you know. Mm. I, I, I've just loved it forever, and, it, and every day it pleases mm. me. But I think this last piece of work that I've done is just like one of the best things I've ever done because because of what the children say, mm -hmm. you know, and they really will tell you what they think. And um, so first you want to know, so we used a rating scale, so um, an okay face at the bottom, or an okay face, a happy face and a sad face. And so you first of all ask, oh, tell me about maths, where is that, happy or sad or okay? Tell me about English and, and PE tell me about your favourite TV programme. So you get a sense that they know how to use the little scale in front. And then you say, what about the work you've done with Jacqueline? And um, so it wouldn't be me asking that, someone else would ask that. And then they, they, they basically give you a mark. And there's a couple of that stand out in my memory. So one boy said, well, at the beginning I was really confused and I didn't know why I was doing it, so I'd say it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay, thank you. And, and then he said, but in the middle... Um, it was okay. He said, and then and then he said, um, he said, I did this piece of work, and it was with a woman called Alison. He said, I did this work with Alison about I had fallen out with my auntie about playing a game. I said, and then I thought this is really great, and so it was a piece of work that had helped him to understand why they'd fallen out when they were playing a game, and it was it just had pivoted for him on that that it's like oh, that's why I'm doing this work. So his awareness of that was really important. It's fantastic. Yeah, really absolutely. Good. Well, you—you—it's you, great when you say you—you you love what you mm. do and you love it. And that—that—that that, 
that that's quite apparent and from what you say but just finally i mean this is probably seems to be the, the, the wrong way to do this but why did you why did you do this why did why did you why did you do the training why what did you want to do it what what, what how, how did it happen oh that is such a well there's obviously i'm a bit of a storyteller as you know but there is an interesting story i i'm of the generation where computers were brand new so I did computer studies O-level and A-level. So I was that group of people who were really kind of shoehorned into those kind of degrees. So I went off and my started a degree in microelectronics and computer programming. And I hated it. <laughs> like I could do it, but I didn't like it. And so I left it. And I had a few other jobs. And But because I was good and confident with technology, I was then moved into a position in the civil service where I, we were computerizing a benefit system. Mm. So I was leading a, a sort of very small team and that, that was coming to an end because we'd done it basically. So we all went, we all went toddling off to the careers advice service and there was one job going within the office we were working in. And so three of my friends got told that they should work in tourism. Mm. My friend Linda got told that she should work in the civil service. So we thought she had set that up so that she could have the only job that was going. <laughs> and I got told that I should look at speech and language therapy. And I really don't know. We filled in a questionnaire. I really don't know why. But I read the leaflet. I took a book out of the library on language development. And I was in just instantly. I just was fascinated. And, and that's where I've been ever since, really. So just in paediatric, how does language development, why does it go wrong? And what is the problem that I want to solve here? And how do we go about solving it? So, yeah, such a strange way. I could have been off in Silicon Valley, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. We but would that, not. Well, that's brought us in a nice circle right back to the beginning, I suppose, mm. the foundational sort of question of this, which was, you know, what, yeah, ha what happens? What, mm. what, what can happen to stop someone speaking and what can we do? Mm. But obviously the, the heartening thing about what you're saying is that things can be done. Mm. Um, and... I guess the chances of if you catch a child early enough, then the, the, then the chances are good, mm. would you say? Mm. Definitely. I think intervention and early mm. intervention can definitely make an impact that means that you can deviate away from the paths that we talked about, about underachievement, mm. frustration, low self-esteem, and you can really channel the child to be able to find the things that they're passionate about and that they can express themselves in, in ways that are that are easier for them and, and they can learn the skills that they need to do that definitely brilliant well thanks ever so much for talking to us that's really fascinating and uh yeah thank thanks you for, uh, thanks for thanks very in. much So the reason I'm talking to Jacqueline Gale, well, I have been talking to Jacqueline, um, is because um, we have a friend in common, but also a colleague in the in the in the case of Jacqueline and Professor James Law, who sadly died back in the autumn very suddenly. It's a big loss for many people. But I mean, uh, that's I came I came into contact with Jennifer Richards, who I interviewed last uh, week, in regard to her work at Newcastle University with James through James. But I obviously. We have we have James in common, mm. Jacqueline. Would you like to just say a few words about him in terms of your your involvement with him professionally? Yeah, he was obviously all of his career was also in paediatrics as well, and um, so I first came across him in print, and he was writing a lot about development and what goes wrong and what we could do. But he was also very much from the position of the practitioners, and that we had to find better ways to demonstrate our value, find better ways to show the difference that we make. Mm. And so that was the first contact I had with him. And then he was conducting a survey then. So if you can imagine a time when, it seems bizarre, but you can imagine a time where therapists worked pretty much in isolation away from schools and didn't contact teachers. And that all changed around about the early 90s. And James was conducting a survey about how are people doing this? Because there was no model. Mm. Everyone was doing it their own way. And he was trying to gather some evidence around what's working. Mm. 
So what have you tried and what are you doing? And But he was very systematic about it. So we were interviewed in Oldham. He sent a team up to interview us in Oldham. And so he was looking at the local authority and the health service and how many health services were in that local authority or the other way around and what were you doing and how were you doing it and what the numbers were and the staffing levels and made huge recommendations and those recommendations they really formed the basis of development of what we would now call the mainstream school services which which are everywhere in speech and language therapy that that piece of work that he did um really formulated the boundaries for what was going to be successful and what needed to be funded and who needed to fund it and what the relationships needed to be at each level within the organisation to make it work. But the focus of that was better services for the children. So that was the first time. So he interviewed our team and what we were doing there. Um, And then later on, whenever I... Had I'd left that job for a little while and I came back and I went for a research post, he interviewed me and I was terrified to think that I would be interviewed because he was such an amazing figure in our profession. Like I felt like he knew everything and it would be very difficult to, to persuade him that I was the right person for the job. But anyway, I was. So we worked together. He was an advisor for our first randomised control trial, which was developing an intervention for children who have social communication disorders. And I think what he did for us there, so we were very much focused. If you can imagine a funnel, our focus is entirely downwards towards the point, And the point is the child. So what is happening within this child? What intervention will make a difference? And James, I always felt, was his focus was up and out. So what difference is this going to make bigger than this little group of children you've got here. And that was the real value in our research that he had that sense. And and he asked us to include a few a few things in our research that we hadn't thought of. So looking at the relationship between language disorder and behaviour, which was a big part of what he wanted to demonstrate, mm-hmm. yeah. which was if you are seeing a young person demonstrating behavioural difficulties there might be a language problem underneath that as well. And so I think that we worked very closely then for a period of years. And the very personal impact it had on me was when we were talking um, and he said something along the lines of, I know you can do it, but I'm not interested in whether or not one person can do it. Mm. And he really wanted me to understand, because the intervention we do is complex, but the children's needs are complex. So you need to match the complexity of what you do with the complexity of the child's needs. And he really pushed me to try and articulate what it was. And it pushed me to do a a postgraduate study to try and pull apart even more clearly what we were actually doing and and what we were saying. and, And even down to that level of what you might say to a child as they're working with you that helps them to think about the reason you're doing the work and the impact it could have. Um, and also to interview the children. So that was also his his voice was in that work for me as well. So I think, like I've said to our colleagues on the research team, I had I had I still had expectations of him being there to guide me. You know that we weren't working together in the last four or five years, but I did think if I had a problem, I could definitely ask for help and I did think that he really valued the work that we did so that was really important Thanks Jack Thank you 